Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Namaste, Yoga Revealed community. This is Alec Rubin, here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed podcast. While visiting the beautiful island of Kauai, I was able to sit down with Bhavani Maki, who has been practicing yoga since 1987. Bhavani is the author of The Yogi's Roadmap, which illuminates the Patanjali Yoga Sutras with clarity and personal experience. As Patanjali says... The function of our incarnation is Volga Apavargata to experience the fullness of creation, the fullness of ourselves and our personal path to liberation. Thank you for tuning in today, my friends. We are blessed to share with you the wisdom that is found in Bhavani Maki on today's episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. Thank you for tuning in to Yoga Revealed podcast. My name is Alec, and we hope again that the podcast and these interviews are illuminating the, the wisdom of yoga that is poured into so many individuals. So thank you so much for tuning in today. I am here in beautiful Hawaii on the island of Kauai, and I sit across from Bhavani Maki, who is an incredibly inspired teacher and practitioner who wrote this book called The Yogi's Roadmap. Roadmap. And, and I'm not a huge reader, so for me to dive into this book and really soak up all the wisdom, it is an amazing book. We'll share more about this book, but Bhavani, thank you so much for inviting me into your lovely home with the roosters howling and, and the, the bugs making their noises. Thank you. Thank you. Thank oh, you. It is my honor and my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Bonnie. So, you know, we'd like to start out with just a little synopsis of who you are, perhaps for those who have not heard of you or what you're teaching. What's your story? What's your background? My background is um, I'm first-generation American. My mother comes from Northern Europe, Finland, and my father from Southern Europe, Greece. They met in, in Switzerland where they were in school, and then my father received a Fulbright scholarship, and they relocated to the United, United States. So um, then he took a position at the University of Chicago in the linguistics department and I was raised in that community which was really unique. It's on the south side of Chicago surrounded by the ghetto and then in this this very interesting community you had the greatest concentration of Nobel Prize winners in the world. So it was just this incredibly, um, it was like living on the border of, of these extremes which was really interesting. And I grew up in Chicago. Um, our household was not an American household. We didn't eat American food. We didn't speak English. 
So I always had this sense of a broadened perspective, which I really appreciate now. And then at about nine years old, I went to my friend's house after school and her mother asked if we wanted to do a yoga class. So we decided to go and I went to this class. It was, it was a really traditional class, you know, Paschimottanasana, Uttanasana, Surya Namaskara, Sarvangasana, Upavishta, just a few poses. And at nine years old, I had this spiritual awakening. I knew that I had arrived at home and that this was the safest place and the place that was the most familiar to me. So I continued to just practice yoga on my own with no instruction, but play with it. Um, pretend that I was a yogi on a bed of nails. It was just kind of in my life. And then as a precocious 17-year-old, uh, I was a musician for a long time, and, you know, played big gigs and whatnot, gowns and heels and the whole thing. Um, I was singing in this bar at the University of Chicago's kind of local watering hole, and I started dating the bartender who was getting his PhD, and he, he was writing his dissertation on the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> so he decided that I was too young for him, but in parting, he gave me a copy of the Gita, and I read the Gita at 17 and had this whole other spiritual awakening. I knew that I had come into this world with a, a, a clarity of perception that had slowly been closed down by the social paradigm. And I was brought into this awareness of Maya, of the changing nature of the illusionary world, illusory world, and this sense of measuring and comparing. My means to measure and ya means really. So it's good, it's bad, acceptable, rejectable. And to connect with my eternal nature. And then this concept of karma. So at 17, I decided I was going to burn all of my karmas. And that was probably the biggest mistake I ever made because <laughs> it became an avalanche of karmas. So at 19, I was... Um, in Colorado and checking out Naropa Institute, I wanted to go back to school. And when I was crossing the street, this was pre-cell phones, to call up my, my um, controlling boyfriend and to break up with him as I was crossing the street, I was hit by a car. And um, it was exactly how they describe it. The light, expansiveness, dissolving into the eternal. I was like in this complete state of ananda and bliss. And then all of a sudden, I heard this voice screaming, Oh my God! Those were the first words. Oh my God! And so I was a little, you know, agitated that I had to come out of this beautiful <laughs> samadhi wow. to help this person who, who needed my help. And then when I opened my eyes and tried to get up, my body wouldn't move and I just went out again. And then the next first voice I heard was, breathe, breathe. And probably these since then, <laughs> those have been the words that come out of my mouth the most. <laughs> and so I was really, really injured and rather than take pain medication and do all these things, um, you know, where my practice had been more about the philosophy and the, um, you know, the Upanishads, the Mahabharata, I realized that I needed asana to heal my body. And so that is how I really got into asana practice. So I just um, really, really took it on. I started studying with uh, Baba Haridas at Mount Madonna Center, and he teaches Ashtanga Yoga, but the eight-limbed practice. And uh, moved to Hawaii, worked with a teacher, Chandra, who was in the Ashtanga Vinyasa tradition. And when she was moving in the last class, in the last Shavasana, she said, you all know I'm leaving, but don't worry, I'm leaving you with a teacher. Bhavani's going to take over my classes. And I completely freaked out. I said, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And she said, you're right, you're not ready, but you're the one. And now it is your duty to learn and study and really take this on for your students. 
So I went back to Mount Madonna Center and did their training. And Bob Alharidas with us younger students, he said, well, you need to bump up your, your practice a little bit. You go Mysore and study with Sri K. Patavi Joyce. So that year, because I had students, I needed, I needed to give them something. I owed them that. I, it, was, it was my duty. I really took it as a responsibility. So I went to India, and that was um, right at the end of 96, and stayed my first time for three months, and went back almost every year. Um, I, I made seven trips there, and then I hosted him twice on Kauai. I used to see him in Europe and all over the mainland. And I feel really blessed that I, you know, became one of his darlings. So mm -hmm. I, I was really yoga. And I tell my students, you know, that like really I was pretty lazy. I didn't have it in me, but pain, pain is what brought me to the practice. Wow. And now it's, it's, it's pure love, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've been, so I'll be turning, um, 48 this month mm. and so I have been practicing yoga for how many years 39 years mm. of my life it's amazing isn't it so I really feel that yoga chose me and uh, God I just put my head to the ground every time because mm. yoga has saved my life over and over again that's very special. Thank you for sharing that with all of us. Yeah. I got chills. From listening we call to it to chicken it. skin in Hawaii. Chicken skin <laughs> in Hawaii. Wow. So from the evolution of going to Mysore and, and tapping into the Bhagavad Gita, the Yoga Sutras, the Upanishads, how many years of study did it take for you to find that seed to want to write a book? About the Yoga Sutras. You know, it's so interesting you ask that because, you know, part of my um, sense of urgency that I was being thrown into this role of a teacher, I thought, okay, I need to read all the major texts, the, you know, the Yoga Pradipika, the Bhagavad Gita, the um, Garanda Samhita, Shiva Samhita, Yoga Sutras, and many of these texts are very short. So I would race through them and I thought, okay. And it really didn't hit me. And then I was really in this Ashtanga practice and going so deep. I mean, Guruji would just push me to my edge in such a beautiful way. He was so exacting, but very loving. And it was just unraveling me. And I didn't really know how to um, reintegrate. Like I was disintegrate disintegrating, it was peeling me back, but the stuff that was coming up inside of me, no one was giving me a way to navigate this. So in, I think it was 99, Rama Jyoti Vernon, who started Yoga Journal on her coffee table in the 70s, um, she, she started Yoga Alliance, and then she adds, don't blame me, it's not my fault, that wasn't how I started it, <laughs> you know, it's turned into something else, I'm good at starting things. She brought Mr. Iyengar over, She's really um, kind of like the godmother of yoga in this country. So she was coming to the island to offer this conference, Women of Vision and Action, and really about training the next generation of leaders to shift the collective consciousness. And I was invited to host her for a workshop, and she came, and she started sharing the sutras. And as soon as she started speaking, the tears just rolled down my face. The, the tradition of yoga has really been based on the student and teacher relationship, which is something that's really lost. Everybody's a yoga teacher now. Um, but to have that depth of a relationship, and it's said that the, the teachings are dead until the teacher breathes their life into it. And this awakens mm -hmm. The student is attracted to a teacher by what we, what we feel they're holding inside of their field and we want to awaken in ourselves. So she came, she gave this transmission, and immediately I knew that this was going to be the key to my wholeness. 
I knew how to do the practices. I knew a lot of practices. I was so austere. I slept on a board, you know, all of these things. And as Patanjali says, our biggest challenge is we constantly miss the point. Hmm. So opening the sutras, and then I talked to Guruji about it, and uh, I remember saying to him, well, I'm very interested in the Yoga Sutras. And he goes, oh, you Western lady, you Yoga Sutras understanding, not possible. <laughs> you pronunciation, not possible, correct. And I paused and I sighed and I said, well, Guruji, so I can't really understand them. Correct. I can't pronounce them correctly. Correct. And then I looked at him and I said, well, is it still better than the other garbage in my head? Definitely, Bhawani. You take it 10 translations, you read each sutra 10 times each. After much time, some small knowledge is coming. So I thought, okay, well, I understand I don't understand. But this, this helps me to make sense of it all. And where I was becoming really rigid and um, Literally, I started closing down from the practice. Like the joy that I had experienced in my youth had dissipated and it had become like a burden and a load. It just completely transformed my perspective. And it's been really, so then, so that was in 99. And then, uh, you know, I was asked to give teacher trainings and I was like, eh, you can't really teach a teacher training. How do you teach? It's about the student-teacher relationships. And then I thought, but you know what? People want them. Let me at least give something that's valuable. And maybe when they come out of it, they have a, a deepened respect for yoga and realize how much they don't know. In that same way of like, okay, now I, if I'm going to teach, I really need to study. I really need to learn. So... Um, then from you know then so many of my students wanted me to record and i had all this material and i thought all right i need to compile it in a book and so basically the book has evolved out of the conversations with my students and my own personal process wow every time that i i pick up a yoga sutra book and i observe it and I take just a you know a little bite of it for the most part, it comes in this year and straight out the other. And I find that in your book, I'm just like a third of the way through it on chapter 10. Slowly, it makes so much sense and it's so accessible because it's like real life story. I can really touch it in my mind and in my heart because I feel it coming from your heart. It's, it's a really fascinating book. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, and you know, really, I mean... Uh even though we're learning to develop an objective perspective of our subjective experience so we can get out of our self-negating patterns, yoga is an empirical science. So it really is about transforming your experience of self. And that's where, that's where the teachers come alive. So the sutras are meant to be like the skeleton or the original DNA. And then the teacher shares their own challenges and how they were able to um, not transcend but move through those challenges and gain a, a, a gain an opening and an insight and that's what really makes it accessible so it really changed the way I taught too mm. because I felt like I had to become this teacher that I wasn't so I kind of developed this super spiritual ego of being very intense and a bad imitation of of my teachers from India and then I realized that, you know what, this is about we as spiritual beings having a human experience. And when we share that, that's what creates the softening and our boundaries, our defense mechanisms mm. to fall aside. Mm. So it's really been a process, you know, and, and Guruji would talk about that a lot. Yoga is an internal practice. The rest is just a circus. And the ones who are really seasoned on the path, like the Richard Freemans and the Tim Millers, they're soft. They're soft inside. You talk to Tim and he just he starts talking about Guruji, the tears just start rolling down his face. Like he's he's just melted down with that sense of bhakti and love. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I hope I'm softening. 
and the um, the love and the joy that I experience in teaching and growing through this process is so rich. Mm. Beautiful. How do we practice the Yoga Sutras? Mm. Well, if we look at, you know, and, and it's curious why Guruji would call this vinyasa system Ashtanga Yoga. And I think it was a way of dropping hints to us that we needed to integrate all the limbs within it. And one, and of course, the first two limbs, yama and niyama, those are two, he said, we need, we learn through asana as well, but, but to develop these. And in the niyamas, we have this svadhyaya. Sva means the self and to sweeten, and dhya means to pour into. And this is the aspect of not only self-observation and self-erudition, but integrating the metaphysical teachings. And usually this was done in the form of chanting. So I think it's really important to add these elements of study. I think for the Western mind, psychoanalysis is really important as well, because sometimes we can take these spiritual axioms and I mean quite frankly some of the biggest jerks that I know are yoga practitioners it doesn't it doesn't mean that you're kind like the pinnacle of, of embodiment of yoga is ahimsa it's kindness it's um, being gracious it's extending ourselves so there's I I think that really it's um, you know, Patanjali, he says, avidya, this missing the point, really not piercing through. The antidote is vidya yoga. And sometimes Ashtanga yoga is called vidya yoga, which is where we peel back another layer mm. and we really look at our vulnerabilities and we start to grow through them with strength. Mm. So it's a, that's kind of the beauty of it is everybody goes about it in their own way but I think the ultimate demonstration of where we are in our embodiment of yogic consciousness is in our relationships, because yoga is relationship. Wasn't a straight answer. It's kind of like, do your work and see what happens. Do your work, see what happens, and get help, you know? That student-teacher relationship is really important. And not just choosing a teacher who fluffs your ego and tells you how great you are. A good teacher is going to push your buttons. And they're going to bring you face-to-face -face with your edge. And it's going to cook you up. And then it's very interesting to see the ones who stick around. I mean, Guruji did to me plenty of times, you know. I had every reason to throw him away. But somehow... Um, you know, he really showed me my resolve. And I saw that he was really just bringing up the stuff inside of me. And instead of projecting it on him and putting the teacher between me and my own work, that he was really advocating for me. So I think it's important. It's, it's very, very important that we choose our teachers carefully. Our teacher can only take us as far as they've gone within themselves. And we as teachers, the depths to which we've developed intimacy with ourselves is what we offer students. In the Sufi tradition, they say a liberated being, a, a, a jivana mukta, is someone who has intimacy with the many facets of themselves their vulnerabilities as well as their strengths. And there is a sense of transparency with them. So it doesn't mean that they've necessarily gotten over everything, but they're aware of where their stuff is and they're able to regulate it. Chitta, vritti, nirodaha. And then it's a continuous process of growing. Mm. Wow. So, Through reading your book more and more, I've come to see through all these sutras that you really weave in a lot of, uh, I use the word mysticism, mm. if you will. Mm. Can you talk about that in yoga? Because I find that 
you know, a lot of our, our practices, perhaps on the mainland, is uh, very physical based. How can uh, we dive into this in an accessible manner for the Western mind to be open? That is such a profound question. Um, you know, I think that, um, and, and of course, there's a sutra for every question, which is so wonderful. Te prati prasabha sukshmaha. If you think you've got it figured out, you better check again. <laughs> and so really being the mystic is not so much about the answer, but it's this process of inquiry and refining your questions rather than looking for the answers, living in this state of awe where it's like, oh my gosh, there's a new layer. I didn't see that before. And here's a new layer and this opens a new layer of myself. In this one translation that I read, um, it from, and it, it's from the Himalayan Institute. Oh my God, it blew me away. It literally brought me to my knees. It's from the second chapter and this sutra is often translated as for one who is awakened the world ceases to exist it was like okay mm -hmm. but um, this translation he says for the awakened being for the one who lives in this state of mysticism they understand the limitation that the world plane poses. They understand that there are aspects of themselves that will never be fed and nourished by the material plane. They also understand why they are born into this body, where there's people who are constantly like looking, what am I doing here, and, and trying to fulfill you know, really transient desires, but they have this sense of like, okay, I'm here, this is my dharma, this is my special gift to the world and what I do, and that supports me in the world. And this is, this is the real juicy part. And they live with a sense of missingness. So that aspect, um, the Tibetans call it the hungry ghost, which is the aspect of self which can never be fulfilled. This aspect is more like, um, well, it's bhakti. It's, it's longing for the beloved. So in this sutra, he's saying there's two types of beings, the ones who are awakened and the ones who are asleep. And the ones who are asleep, they're confused by their life. They're confused by the limitation of the world. They don't know what they're doing here. They have false expectations. And the ones who are awakened, they understand that really, um, and as Patanjali says, the function of our incarnation is bhoga apavargartam, to experience the fullness of creation the fullness of ourselves and our personal path to liberation. So we always have this sense of longing, but, it, it, but it's not from a place of feeling empty. It's, it's that, that longing for, um, I don't even know how to put it into words. Really, it's bhava, and bhava is that, that feeling of connection and union, and it's the longing which keeps us in that place. <laughs> Such a beautiful way to tap into mysticism. Neat. Cool. So let's talk about the word. I read it a few times in the book, uh, the word tantra in yoga, because for the most part, when one hears tantra, they will think of sex. Can you tell us what, how do you weave in Tantra into your classes and into your teachings through the practice of yoga? Absolutely. So Tantra, um, it, it literally means to weave. It means to weave. So our ability to weave our experiences together 
Um, and I think this is a big challenge for many of us on the spiritual path. For instance, we, we do this spiritual bypass. Oh, it's all Maya. It's all illusion. And that's not true. I mean, our pain is real and our love is real and what's happening is real. What is the illusion is that we try to transpose our ideation of that and make a snapshot of it, of it instead of seeing how Maya is this dancing um, girl of illusion and it's always changing and in, in flux. So Tantra is our ability to weave the physical with the metaphysical. And it also comes from the word Tanu, which is woven into many of the asana names, Purvotanasana, Uttanasana, Paschimottanasana, Prasarita Padmottanasana. And Tanu means to go beyond prior self-imposed limitation. Wow. So it's this kind of stretching and, and expanding of our of our chitta, of our perspective. Um, and tra means in order to transcend. So in the, in the when we're practicing tantra, nothing is rejected. And Patanjali even says this: something's purity is determined by its capacity to bring you into consciousness, into realization. So it's a way of looking at, and, and Patanjali says, if we're ever going to really find and um, to, to experience self-actualization, self-realization, that our first biggest challenge is to get free from raga and vesha, our aversions and our attractions. And then when we can experience life with equanimity, the nectar begins to flow. As Rumi says, what is a bad man? Nothing but a good man's work. One of my favorite yogic stories is about this, this high um, yogi, and he came to the end of his life, and it was time for his soul to be judged, how many more lifetimes of karma he needed. And when he got there, they said, well, you've done very well, you've burned a lot of karmas, so we're going to give you two choices. You can either practice three more lifetimes as a saint or one more as a demon. And he chose the demon. And as the demon, his function was to get people to pray to God. Because when you're suffering, when you're really suffering, that is when you realize you just don't know and you need to call on something larger than yourself. Hmm. Crown story. And it's interesting. I think it's in the, maybe it's in the fourth chapter. I don't know the third and fourth chapters that well, but Patanjali talks about how for someone who is awaked, awakened, karma is neither black nor white. So we get beyond this, it's good, it's bad, I like it, I don't like it. And we learn to see that everything is really just bringing us into a deeper experience of ourself and our oneness. Olga Apalargarka. You said the word spiritual bypass. Oh, yeah. I find that that's a very, uh, it's all good kind of experience. And, you know, I'm sure I say that all the time. And I, I, I would hold just myself to that. It might just be like a subconscious kind of thing where it's like, I don't even know that I'm doing that. How can we observe if we're spiritually bypassing a situation to avoid any form of challenge or any form of really doing our work. Again, I think the proof is in our relationships and whether we, um, you know, what I really have begun to appreciate and this extends to my personal relationships, you know, back in the day, it was enough. If you listened to the Grateful Dead or you did yoga, you were my best friend. You know what I mean? And now it's just become much more um, you know, I just become more refined in who I, who I want to spend time with. And what, um, what really is a big aspect of that is this sense of humility. When we have humility, we are reproachable. We're taking responsibility for what we see around us 
as far as how we respond to what's happening around us. So if we're quick to blame someone else, or if we go into a state of withdrawal, probably we're missing the point. And I know for me personally, again, you know, because I'm, I'm like, I can give you a sutra for anything. I've, yeah. I've got tons of like, you know, I can, I can vomit up some spiritual knowledge and, you know, bing, bang, boom, you know, get puffed up and leave. But really what's been very important to me has been taking on this aspect of, of psychoanalysis. I think it's really important actually because we are so hardwired in our paradigm and we do, and, and, and there is a lot of wisdom. I mean, it's everywhere. You don't have to be born in the right caste, the right sex, the right era to receive it. You can, you can pick it up anywhere at any time, but for really to penetrate us, I think it's really helpful to have that aspect of somebody who is truly unbiased and can help you to look to deeper layers of yourself that you're not seeing. Mm. You're young. <laughs> Maybe you haven't been there yet, but like know that that's actually a really healthy aspect of practice. And, and we have to be careful. I speak about this in my first chapter. I mean, you're unique because you're actually Indian. So you have this aspect of your consciousness. But for most of us as Westerners, uh, which are really, we are encouraged to um, be ambitious, to be self-important. We take this practice of yoga and we distort it through the lens of our consciousness. It's about how far you can put your foot and your head and grab your toe and it becomes, you know, it's, uh, it, it was so amazing. I, I found this in Swapalama. Hatha Yoga Pradipika, mm. and he describes there's three types of students. Mm. The mild student is just very casual. Okay? You know, they're, they're really not interested. They might just go to yoga because all the cool people are doing it, and it's sexy, and it seems fun. And in fact, um, uh, Mr. Iyengar further says, for that type of student, they only breathe from their collarbones up. It's completely egoic based. For the intermediate student, this is the type of student who really wants to be more focused, wants to have a deeper experience, but easily gets distracted. Hmm. And um, they are, like when the teacher triggers stuff in them, they're likely to get angry at the teacher and put the teacher between them and their work. And this is basically most of us, okay? And this is the, the medium type of student. For that type of student, their breath goes from their collarbones to about their diaphragm. And they're really still sifting and sorting through their mental and emotional stuff, their unresolved issues. And then for the advanced student, this type of student breathes all the way down into the bowl of their pelvis. So they're integrating wisdom with their experience in the world, that sense of Tantra. And this type of student is very introspective. They're very open to the teachings. They worked through most of their emotional issues, their, their mental rhetoric. And when they don't understand something, instead of pressing the teacher to further describe the indescribable, they recognize that this is their adventure and really starting to unfold the teachings in themselves. Mm. Three types of students. And then, he, and then Patanjali says then there's even three subcategories. Mildly mild, medium mild, <laughs> intensely mild, and so forth. Wow. Yeah. So kind of tapping onto that more, what are major keys in your practice that you've learned to regulate the body, breath, health, and emotions in order to sustain our yoga practice over the course of our lifetime. Can you ask that question again? Yeah, what are some large keys of success that you've found to regulate the wellness of our body, how to breathe, of our mind, the emotional stability? Oh my gosh. A few keys. Um, humility. Mm. 
I think it's about humility and really, um, you know, that sense of the, the second sutra which defines yoga and it's, it's like there's a whole chapter devoted to that sutra because it's, there's just so much in there. Uh, Patanjali speaks about chitta and chitta, we don't really have a word for it in English, but it's your personal energy field. Uh, chit means to collect, so it's informed by every experience you've ever had, every experience from your ancestry on the deepest level, our full collective experience. And then there's the aspect of ahamkara, which is the eye sense. And it comes from our first mantra when we're born, mm. the first inhalation, which means I am. <laughs> and kara comes from kriti, which is the root of karma. I am doing. So it's this, and then we have the aspect, and what the function of ahamkara is, is to judge and compare and to criticize and negate. In its unrefined state, it's the eternal critic. It just sees its very negative. In its refined state, it gives us the ego drive to be like, I want to understand more. I want to get free. I don't want to be limited anymore. So it can actually become a healthy egoic drive. <coughs> Excuse me. And then we have the, uh, and it said that the seed of a humkata is in our forehead. So when we push our head forward and the back of our neck tightens and we really want it, we go into a state of contraction and we close down. We're attached to being the doer. Every time we bow our head to our hearts, this is the seed of buddhi. And buddhi is our wisdom. It's that part of us where when we're having a conversation and we have different points of view, we can say, okay, I understand your point of view and I understand my point of view. And obviously there's something much bigger. So that's in the seat of our hearts. So for me, it's really about um, moving my consciousness with intent. And so when I create an action and there is that aspect of doing, then to drop in and allow these hidden layers to reveal themselves to me. So then it's like, I do what I can do and then I put my head on the ground. I mean, not literally, but this, and, and Patanjali says, um, Samadhi Siddhirishvara Pranidhanatva. The perfection of Samadhi as a state of consistent integration is recognizing that there is a larger consciousness at play. And we are agents of that consciousness. So a lot of it for me is about listening, about um, this objective, uh, objective perspective of my subjective experience, and then really going into the feeling, the subjective experience of the yoga. Mm. So there's so many ways to do that. There's a really fascinating is the sutra on pranayama. So there's only three sutras on asana, okay? Mm -hmm. And one that blew my mind is prayatna shaitiryananta samapatipyam. It's natural that when you make an effort, some tension will arise. Maintain the integrity of your action and relax the unnecessary tension. Rest yourself on the endlessness of consciousness. And then in the sutras following on um, pranayama, he says, uh, And, you know, if we're in the Ashtanga Vinyasa tradition, we work really hard in getting our breath even and seamless. And he says, in the fourth type of pranayama, you even let go of controlling your breath. So you offer all that you, and it takes so much effort to get this control, and then you give it up. <laughs> and that's what I'm exploring now. Because with 20 years of getting my breath to a metronome, getting it completely even, I realize 
how many control issues lie in that. And then we start to go into this place, which is Kaivalya Kumbhaka, where we're no longer in the pool of opposite in inhale and exhalation, and we explore the pauses in between. And there's a shift in our experience. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. So really, my practice has become more one of pranayama. I'm not doing all those poses anymore. I'm also a mother. I'm a middle-aged mother, breastfeeding mother. You know, so I don't have that kind of reserve anymore. So for me, it's really about the pranic aspect and meditating on the deeper questions of life. And instead of expending energy, starting to be fed in the practice in a different way. Mm. What tips would you offer to the practitioners and our listeners to perhaps take a next step forward into a breathing practice? Wow. I mean, I, uh, that's go, you know, I, I have more books to write and I'm, I'm writing a second book right now. So I'll have, this book's going to be much more exoteric where the Yogi's Roadmap, few people are really, you know, going to read it cover to cover. They can pick it up and open it up, but this will be more accessible. Um, you know, I think it's really pranayama. So is, um, Tasmin Satishvasa Prashvasa Yorgaktivichetaha Pranayamaha. So if we look at the prior sutras, which I mentioned, where it's we take an action, we, we first we move with intelligence, and then we take the action. And instead of conti continuously fidgeting, we kind of let go of our restlessness and we allow insight to pour into us. And so the perfection of asana is the relaxation of unnecessary tension and anxiety. And the perfection of the relaxation of unnecessary tension and anxiety results in pranayama. So a really simple practice is viloma pranayama. And it's so interesting because if you recall what I was saying about the three calibers of student, the highest caliber of student is the depth to which they're penetrated. So we can lay down and, you know, just kind of observe our breath where it is. And it might just be in our collarbones. It might be in the lower lobe of our right lung. We observe it without changing it. And that takes a lot of self-restraint to just watch. And then you can exhale all your air out. And in the pause, you feel the contraction of the musculature associated with your breath. Before you initiate a breath, you simply relax that contraction. And then the next breath comes of its own accord. And we feel the fullness of that breath. And rather than gasping for the next breath, we feel the musculature associated with our inhalation and we relax it. And then the next breath begins to follow. And we begin to explore how our breath starts to penetrate to deeper and deeper layers of our psyche. And in just a few breaths, we can go from a casual, mild student to an advanced student. And then as we have that realization, we might <gasps> puff up and boom, we're casual again. I mean, it's really like our breath totally reveals. Mm. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. I mean, take that into your practice. And then in my um, studies of um, Yoga Vashishta, he speaks about um, how we breathe. One of, one of the pearls that I found is instead of just breathing beyond the tip of your nose to realize that there is an electromagnetic field that surrounds you, it is the, it is the span of 12 angula. And an angula is the width of one digit. And so when you inhale, instead of just pulling prana from right beyond the tip of your nose, you shift your focus and you start to pull from 12 angula. When you're full, 
pause, don't just exhale, relax. And then as you exhale, you empty your heart through the carotid arteries and the base of your brain. And it's astounding. So that's where I'm at now. It's like just opening these more subtle layers. Mm. And if we look at Krishnamacharya, he said after the age of 40, your practice becomes more pranayama based. It's You don't need all that asana. You don't need it so much. I mean, it's fun. Keep doing it. Have a great time. But my energy levels from when I was 20 to now where I'm turning 48, they're different. You know, I'm a, I'm a householder. I'm a mother. I have a yoga shala. Like, I have to use my prana in different ways. So for me, my practice is really about absorbing energy. Mm. It's, it, it's become more subtle. Mm. I think that's a beautiful evolution to how we can sustain our practice over our life. Yeah, and it's going to change. You know, Krishnacharya, he, he spoke about these different phases. There's like the sunrise phase, and that's the brahmacharya phase. That's when your hormones start waking up. You do a shtanga vinyasa, man. You need to like kick that stuff through your nervous system instead of, you know, having like random sex and getting into, you know, getting into trouble. It's like learn to harness that energy. Mm-hmm. And then when we go into, I'm trying to remember the name, Hastagraha, I can't remember, but this is the householder phase. Now you've got to take care of your family. You've got to have a roof over your head. You've got to um, put food on the table. So now it's more about pranayama, feeding your nervous system, being able to handle the complexity. Life gets more complex as you take on dependence, whether it's students or children or your parents or whatever it is. And then in the final phase, assuming you've done your work in the material plane, this is when you would become a jungle dweller. Mm. And you would literally, um, you, you set your family up with everything. You create your own burial ceremony. You die to your family. You shave your head. You change your name and you go live in the jungle or in the forest with other like-minded seekers and you really start to develop your understanding for the metaphysics because you're about to have the greatest yogic adventure of all, which is to leave your body and leave this life. So there's phases, you know, and it, and it's really beautiful. I know for me it was really hard to let go of my vinyasa practice. I was trying to get pregnant. It was a seven-year struggle, and I couldn't be doing all these intense postures. So it was like sacrifice to give up pashasana. Pashasana, which Krishnamacharya prescribed to women as birth control. <laughs> so I couldn't be doing that pose anymore. I couldn't be doing this pose, and it was like heartbreaking, and I realized how attached I'd become to the practice. But this is what I really wanted, and actually motherhood was a desire that could be fulfilled. Mm. That's where I'm at now. So now for me, it's Sarvangasana. It's the mother of asanas. It's about... You know, from holding my baby for hours and nursing and and the way that women age and we start to get pulled forward. This is a posture that really works with your endocrine system and with rehydrating your body. It's, It's critical for women. And the yogis, if you look at the tradition, you know, more than the physical, they were using the postures to access the master glands of their endocrine system, which are responsible for shamanic states. And for um, you know transcendental realization, so my practice has really shift shifted, and it's so beautiful because you know since I was nine to forty eight, like the practice is always with me. It's always fresh. Mm, thanks for revealing that. Yeah, that's awesome. Really special. Just a few more questions. One to tap into what we were talking about previously: the student teacher relationship. It's something that I have immense value for and I've always searched for and only recently have I found a few individuals that I can regard to as teacher because I see them in their practice. 
And on Wednesday, when I was walking into your beautiful shala, I was a little unsure if I was in the right spot, but then I heard some chanting and the Gayatri mantra coming out so sweetly and I was like, oh, this is the right place. And it was a beautiful, beautiful space, truly. So yeah, thank you. Um, how do you suggest to us listeners who perhaps, you know, are in the mild student phase of taking classes, because it does feel good. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, and then the intermediates who are interested and are getting distracted. Um, finding that teacher and creating mm -hmm. that space, I feel like that's the hardest part. It is. It is. Um, well, we've all heard it before. When the student is ready, the teacher comes, and I really believe that, you know. So... Uh, Self-study is an important aspect. This, this, um, you know, okay, I know I'm missing the point. I need to reevaluate what am I really doing here. And also, I think to see the way that the teacher works with the students is really interesting. I mean, I, I really observed that with Guruji. And trust me, Guruji was great, but he was not perfect. I don't believe he was a god. I knew him well. I knew lots of things about him. And I loved him, you know, I loved him. Just like my father wasn't perfect, he was far from it, but I loved and respected him. Um, but really seeing how they are in their own relationships, um, you know, and, and it's, there's a different student for every kind of, or different kind of teacher for every kind of student. But for me, I wanted somebody who was exacting and compassionate who had a sense of humor, but did not take the practice casually at all, and who was really going to like push me to grow. So um, for me, it was really about, um, you know, and, and when, I, when I've been studying Krishnamacharya's life and what he taught through his students, he said, I teach to learn. So I want the teachers who are deeply interested. They're not sitting here just kind of like going, teaching by rote, but like they're, they're on fire. They're in love with it. Like they're just like, oh my God. You know, you can feel the bhava and their delight in it. So that's what's really interesting to me. And someone who's really been in the fire, who's practiced, who's made the effort, made the effort, you know, to go to India. Or, and it, it always amazes me. It's like, oh, I'd love to come to your class, but it's all the way in Hanalei. It's 15 minutes away. It's like, oh my God, I used to travel two days to go see with my teacher. And I'm not saying I'm him, but I'm 15, you know. So, but that's okay. Like, I might not be that person's, that person's teacher. But someone who... Um, it's just completely woven into their being. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's a feeling, it's a sense. And someone is going to really show me parts of myself that maybe I hadn't looked at. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got an amazing teacher. Richard, he is so in love, mm -hmm. you know? And, and that is what he inspires in his students. Mm -hmm. And the sad thing is, you know, and it, it, it is a sacrifice because when we decide to teach, um, it, it's just natural we're not going to have the same kind of energy for our practice. But there are ways that we can maintain it. We need to constantly be a student. If we're not excited about learning, hmm. how can we teach anybody? So I want someone who's on fire. Mm. You've given us so many nuggets. It's so amazing to, to reveal this to our communities and to the listeners. Thank you. Uh, what would be one nugget, one final piece of wisdom that you would like to share to the teachers and the practitioners, to, to the yogis who are listening as they carry forward on their practice? Um, you know, in, in the Ashtanga tradition, I think it was the first Western student who studied with Guruji. His name is Cliff. Have you heard of him, mm -hmm. Cliff? Well, he's uh, sequestered himself to the island of Priti in Greece, and he lives in this really remote place. And my friend, who's, who's a teacher in Athens, Nikos Ografos, 
he went there to find Cliff. And it was really hidden, and he had to find it. He lives in the middle of nowhere, and he's just practicing yoga and meditating, and you know, in the bhava, the, you know, the the that missingness and loving of the divine, living in the question. Um, and and so my friend Nico, he interviewed him and questioned him for like five hours, pranayama, mulabana, udiyanabana, this, that, the other, all of these technical questions. And at, at kind of the end of this conversation. Cliff looked at him and he said, you know, I really think yoga is about just being a better person. And for me, I, I really think that that's the embodiment that I, I, I see and that I aspire to and the great ones that have come into my life is the loving kindness that that. Yoga gives us the capacity as we look through layers of ourself and really take personal responsibility and have compassion for ourselves, but also we make the effort to transform. This is what gives us the capacity to look at others. And when they are projecting some distortion upon us, our ability to see through those layers to the innocence and the purity of their being. Love is so much more than a human emotion. We tend to base it on contingency. If I like what you're doing, if you, I, like, you, I like the way you make me feel. Love is a universal expression that holds all of creation in balance. Yoga is this internal experience. And in the Gita, Krishna speaks about this to Arjuna. He says there's many paths of yoga. Hatha yoga, slowest path. Builds a lot of ego. Bhakti yoga. Honoring and serving the divine in everyone. This is the highest path. Mm. So let us always remember the love. Not enabling. Enabling is when we, we think we're being compassionate and we try to do someone else's work and deprive them of the character building process and their own victory. It, it's not a, a cut and dry answer, but love, which is really about holding space for each other and ourselves to grow and to see that everything is working in our favor. Everything is encouraging us to expand and grow. Mm. Thank you so much, Bhavani. Oh, God, mm. thank you. It's so fun to talk about this stuff. Yeah, it's you love it. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, so many pronouns to you. Oh. And it, Thank you again for taking time out of the day and revealing to us the yoga that you have so clearly committed yourself to and devoted your 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 path to. Thank you. Thank you, Master G. Oh, I am uh, just you know it's so wonderful to meet meet a brother on this path who is just. I mean, I can see the level of, of love and respect and humility that you carry. It's really beautiful. Mm. Namaste. Namaskar and aloha. Mahalo. Thank you for listening to this insightful episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. We find Bhavani's wisdom so profound and inspiring. We hope it provides you with the motivation to further your practice by studying the Yoga Sutras. If you are ever in Hawaii, visit the island of Kauai and head to the North Shore where Bhavani teaches at the yoga studio she founded named Yoga Hanalei. If you do want to get a copy of the Yogi's Roadmap, check out the description in the podcast app for this episode and follow the link to createspace.com and use the code provided for the discount price on her insightful book. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Yoga Reveal Podcast. If you would take a moment to leave us with a five-star rating, it would make a huge difference. We love to hear from you and want to know what you think about the interviews. Also, 
visit yogarevealed.com and sign up for our mailing list. We have amazing gifts coming up to share with you. Until next time, love life and shine bright. Namaste. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.